Well, good evening, friends. It's lovely to be with you. Uh, the reason I sound like this is because I come from Oxford, England. I am um, the president of Union, which is an American-British ministry dedicated to the reformation and revival of the church in Europe. The church in Europe today has been hinted at already. You may not know quite how bad it is over there. It is now known by missiologists as the spiritually darkest continent on the globe. Church congregation sizes are perhaps a 20th of what you would expect of an American average. The culture as a whole has moved on so significantly. You're beginning to experience some of it. I fear more is coming. The culture has moved on to be beyond unchristian, to be vehemently anti-Christian. It is becoming extremely difficult to be a Christian in Europe today. And union is dedicated under God's grace to seeing Christ's church revived and refreshed. We want to see leaders grow up. We want to raise them, help deploy them so that they can plant many churches faithful to Christ's gospel. And we want to provide, we do provide resources, books, pamphlets, financial resources to help them go out and plant healthy biblical churches. I said that this is a American-British ministry. The reason for that is we're convinced that the gospel has always flourished most fruitfully when we've stood together transatlantically. You see this when, for example, George Whitfield, the British evangelist, stood together with Jonathan Edwards. And you have the time of great awakening. And if we can stand together for the gospel, then I hope that Europe can be blessed by American prayers, American support. And I hope that if we can see the reformation of the church in Europe, we can stop the rot spreading to you. Because there's a very bad anti-Christian culture coming your way. And I rejoice to see how the church still comparatively flourishes here. And I want it to flourish more. That's our ministry. There are some leaflets out the back. If, if you'd like to, can I ask you simply to consider taking a leaflet and consider, might this be a ministry that the Lord might lay on your heart to consider supporting, to find out a bit more about and to consider partnering with us. Have a think about that later. For now, let's turn to God's Word. It is 2 Corinthians. No, I'm saying that wrong for here, aren't I? You, you say 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 3rd. Is that right? I'm just not going to write. Okay, I'll try it. 2 Corinthians 3 yeah, okay, verses 7 to 18, we'll get there. Okay, 2 Corinthians 3 from verse 7. Let's hear from God's life-giving word. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end... Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we're very bold. 
We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. And for, to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let us pray now that God might bless us through his word. Our magnificent God and Savior, we thank you for your word. And we ask now, please, Father, enlighten us through your word. You know where every heart in this congregation is at. Do business with all our hearts, we pray. By your spirit, work in every heart here. So that opening our eyes through your word, we might see your glory and that every one of us might be transformed, ministered to by your spirit, affected, confronted. Transform us, we pray, into the image of Christ. And in his sweet and strong name, we pray it. Amen. Friends, have you ever thought about the power of the things you look at? Have you ever thought about how what you look at shapes you? What you hold in your focus, in your gaze, what you set your eyes on, how it shapes you? That's what I want us to consider now. And I want to start with a little story from the great theologian Augustine. That is how you say it. And Augustine told a story about his friend Alepius. Alepius was a zealous, serious, upright young guy. He, he wanted to flee what he saw as worldliness. And in particular, he hated the Roman world's love of extreme violence. He hated the Roman gladiatorial combats. But Augustine tells us some of his friends used friendly violence. You know what young guys are like. Used friendly violence to take him to the arena. And Augustine says this, when they arrived at the arena and had found seats where they could, the entire place seethed with the most monstrous delight in the cruelty. Alepius kept his eyes shut, forbade his mind to think about such fearful evils. Would that he had blocked his ears as well. A man fell in combat, and a great roar from the entire crowd struck him with such vehemence, he was overcome by curiosity, and he opened his eyes. The shouting entered by his ears and forced open his eyes. And as soon as he saw the blood, he at once drank in savagery and did not turn away. His eyes were riveted. He imbibed madness. And without any awareness of what was happening to him, he found delight in the murderous contest. He was not now the person who had come in. He took the madness home with him 
so that it urged him to return. What you look at changes you. It stamps itself upon your soul. Whatever it is, the thing you spend time holding in your gaze will mold you into its image. In a visual culture, we need to know that. And this is exactly what we see in the Old Testament passage that Paul has in mind here in 2 Corinthians 3. In this passage, Paul is thinking of Exodus 32 to 34. And if you could, can I ask you to put a finger in 2 Corinthians 3 and come with me, I'll try and get there, and come with me to Exodus 32. Now in Exodus 32... The Israelites are at Mount Sinai. And Aaron and the Israelites, Moses is up the mountain. Aaron and the Israelites. Let's read from Exodus 32, verse 4. Aaron received gold from the hand of the Israelites, fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. And they said... These are your gods, O Israel. These are the gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw, he built an altar before it. You see, Aaron and the Israelites, they see this idol, they fix their eyes on it. And what happens is, like their mindless metal idol, they become mindless. You become like what you worship, what you look at. They forget the Lord and his mighty deliverance. Friends, fix your eyes on sin. It will promise happiness. It will dehumanize you. It will rob you of your ability to think straight, to love straight, to love God, to relate to him, to relate to others aright. Sin will shrivel you to death. But after seeing that in Exodus 32... In the next couple of chapters, in Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses said to the Lord, please show me, let me see your glory. Where the Israelites are seeing the idol, Moses wants to see the glory of the Lord. And what's the effect? Flick on to chapter 34, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, having been with the Lord, seeing his glory, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses didn't know. The skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. That is the story that's on Paul's mind when he says, please come back to 2 Corinthians 3 now. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, this is what's on Paul's mind. He writes, 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, like Moses, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are created in the image of God that we might be like him. Isn't that a destiny that's remarkable? We're created that we might be like him. Sharing his life, his vitality, his loving, pure character. 
And we become, Paul says, we become what we were made to be by looking to Christ. That's the secret. Christ, who is the image of God, beholding him, we become more truly human. Then, beholding him, all our faculties, our minds, our hearts, our lives get aligned, get transformed to be Christ-like as we look to him. It matters where you look. It's why the Lord says in Isaiah 45, look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. That's his command, look. It's why the psalmist cries in Psalm 17, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. And when I awake, this is our resurrection hope, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. So let's press into Paul's argument here. And I want you to see two things. First, Paul is making a comparison. And the comparison is this. As Moses would remove the veil when he went in to be with the Lord, so just picture it in your mind, he turns to be with the Lord And when he turns to the Lord, he removes the veil. Just so, when we turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. And so we begin to shine with the glory of the Lord as we commune with him. So there's a comparison. We turn to the Lord, the veil is removed, and we begin to shine with God-likeness as Moses did. But Paul is also showing a contrast. So there's a comparison, but there's also a contrast. It's this. Moses had one kind of glory. We have another. Oh, we have another. Verse 7. Would you look with me? of verse 7 of our passage. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, the, the two tablets of the law, if that came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory than what you saw with Moses? And so what Paul's doing here is showing the contrast between the law, the tablets of the law that Moses brought down, and the gospel, between the letter and the spirit. And he's saying this, the ministry of the law, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that, a ministry of the law is glorious. Because it is truth from God. But the ministry of the law does not have the same transformative power as the ministry of the gospel, the ministry of the Spirit. And let's try to see why now. Why is it that the ministry of the gospel, the ministry of the Spirit, is able to most deeply transform us where the law is not able? Why is that? Would you come with me back to Exodus 33? Exodus 33, let's go from verse 18. Let's see what Moses was shown. Exodus 33, verse 18. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But, 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 you 
cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand till I've passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But, but my face shall not be seen. What Moses saw, what the Israelites would be shown in the gospel, in the law, what the Israelites saw in the law, they saw the goodness of God. Beautiful, incredible. In the law, they'd see the holy perfection, the righteousness, the purity of God. They'd see in the law, how he would provide sacrifice for sin. They'd see his graciousness. In the law, they'd see his commitment to his people. And on and on. So many blessings would they see. But what Moses did not see on Sinai, what you did not get to see in the law was the very face of God. Now come back to 2 Corinthians. Now, 2 Corinthians, Paul's argument about this ministry carries on in chapter 4. I want you to hold that lesson from Exodus. Hold it in your mind for a moment. Paul's argument carries on into chapter 4. He keeps talking about chapter 4, verse 3, veiling. Can you see he's still talking about veiling? Moses' face is veiled. Even if our gospel is veiled, he's still thinking about the same ideas. And then we read 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Moses heard, do you remember? Moses heard, my face shall not be seen. Okay, hold that in your mind. Moses heard, my face shall not be seen. We hear 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We've seen the face. Of Jesus Christ. So in the law... The Israelites saw the sacrifices. We've seen the cross that all the sacrifices were about and pointing towards. Moses said, please show me your glory. We have seen the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, because Christ has come. Christ who is the glory of God. And more than that, we've seen the glory of God, but we've seen Christ crucified, which was the hour of his glorification. Extraordinary moment. The glorification of the glory of God on the cross when he was lifted up. And there on the cross, there we saw his goodness pass before us. in the nail marks, in those choked out words of forgiveness. There we saw the goodness of God. There in the cross, in that moment, the hour of his glorification. There we saw glory in the face of Christ. You would never have dreamed of. You'd never dream of a God so loving. Never dream of a God who cared about you so had you not seen the cross. There on the cross, you see, here's a God who displays glorious humility, patience with us, and, oh, love. The rainbow colors of God's perfections blazoned out for all to see at the cross. 
This is the sight that tears the veil away. This is the sight that scatters the darkness. And so this, dear friends, this is the sight that always must be placarded before our eyes. Christ crucified, the sight that tears the veil away. And this isn't just something for Mr. Preacher. Whatever it is you do, however it is you serve, through it all, point people up to the glory of God in the face of Christ. Because only in the face of Christ, especially Christ crucified, only there do people get to see how glorious perfect, surprisingly beautiful and all-satisfying the living God is. I didn't always see that. And I'm sure there is someone here this evening who's not seen it either. And for you, Paul would say, a veil lies over your heart. And you may even have felt it. Felt that Christ has never really been desirable to you. You don't quite know what I'm talking about. It just doesn't connect with you. Maybe God has always seemed to you distant, aloof, undesirable, that there are so many more things in the world that actually are more pleasurable than God. Other things have a more attractive glow. If that's you, oh my friend, look. Look to the cross. There is the living God. Whatever it is you thought God was like, some distant, tyrannical bore who would never care about you, never love you, who would demand that you earn his love, no, no, that's an idol you're imagining. The living God displays himself on the cross. And there, see him, see him, covered in blood, screaming with pain, all out of love for us. This is no distant bore. This is a God who is streaming with love, who could not love you more, who loves you more even than the most devoted parent. And us devoted parents know how deeply we love our children. This father loves even more, and not because we've ever earned it. Here is a God who dies to embrace you, to have you as his and hold you as his, never let you go. Look, look, friend, look and live. And if you're thinking, do you know what? This is all very well. Maybe God is glorious and beautiful. There is something attractive in Christ, but he can't be for me because I'm so dirty. And full of guilt. I'm too dirty for him. If that's you, dear friend, we see the glory of God in the cross. This God loves to display his glory. Can I say this a hundred times? This God loves to display his glory in forgiving great sinners. In blotting out their sin. And so if you feel your sin and guilt now, don't rob God of his glory and try to cover over your sin yourself. He loves to do that. Let him do it properly. Instead, come to him. Hold it all out. Hold out all your guilt. And have him prove himself to you as a glorious redeemer. Because my friend, 
There is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. There is more power in the blood of Christ to wash away your sin than there is sin in you. Come. Come to him now. And this glory of Christ, this beauty, it's not just a sight that can win the unbeliever to say, oh, rid me of my guilt, I come to you. The sight of the glory of Christ, this is what makes the faces of the saints shine. They blossom in his light. This is the sight that the saints need every day. For the glory of God in the face of Christ, it is like the sun rising on a winter morning. That's what his glory is like. It is like the turning of winter into spring. You see it around you, don't you? All the lovely blossom around us. That's what the glory of God is like in the saints. His light shines and lives begin to blossom beautifully. Let nature be an illustration for you of what the glory of God does in our lives. And that's why, you see, the glory of God is regularly associated in Scripture with a shining, blazing, radiant light. Can you think, that night outside Bethlehem, the shepherds are there in the darkness, and what happens? The glory of the Lord shone around them. Well, the blazing glory cloud of the Lord before the Israelites in the wilderness. And it works in the Christian life something like this. Back this winter, we had uh, quite a lot of snow around Oxford. And uh, what happened was all the emergency services, that they, they come around, you, you have... Uh, you have people sweeping the streets. You have um, them putting uh, sand down to try to get rid of all the snow and the ice. You've got hundreds and hundreds of hours of labor trying to get rid of all the snow and ice and frost. And still, after all that work, you see cars are still skidding around on the streets. People are still slipping on the sidewalks. And then what happened was... The sun came up and shed its warmth and light. And within just a few hours, the snow was melting on its way. That's what the glory of Christ does in the gospel. Where his face shines, sin's hard frost melts away. So can I ask you, what is it you struggle with? What's that sin that besets you? That thing that just has a grip on you, and maybe you'd love to let go of it. You hate it, but you can't let go of it. What's the dirt? Friend, whatever it is, don't simply try to shovel it away like so much dirty snow. A lot of sweeping is not going to sort your life out. Instead, put everything under the light of Christ's glory. And so, look through his word for him. S seek to know him better. R read the Gospels. Read Paul. Seek to, to see more of Jesus. Be full of praising him, reminding yourself of who he is. Show yourself again how much he loves you, how greatly he forgives you, how with him you don't need to earn his love. See how, see how he is better. See how he's more fulfilling than your sin. So 
compare him. Stack Christ against your sin. Both promise happiness. Who delivers? Compare them. And see how he is better. How you have more joy and fulfillment when you walk with him. Do that and you will find the coldness and the grip of enslaving ways beginning to thaw about you. And the reason is because you'll begin to want him more than them, so you'll walk away. And did you notice that extraordinary little comment in Exodus 34? Do you notice? We read it briefly. Moses did not realize that his face was shining. Do you notice that? Moses... Christians hear this, Moses was not trying to look radiant. It was an unforced, unconscious radiance. Because when a person looks upon the glory of God, the light of God's pure holiness exposes them so they know themselves more deeply. And therefore, a person who looks upon the glory of God will feel more sinful, but will look more glorious. And I hope you know examples of this. Do you know senior saints, older than you, who have been walking with the Lord for decades? And if you talk with them, they seem to have this extreme sensitivity to their own sin. And they seem, you ask them, what do you struggle with? And they'll tell you, and you think, really, that's a sin? I hardly qualify that as a sin. It's so minor. But but it seems to really grieve them. They're so sensitive to their sin, and yet, while there's this great awareness of their own sinfulness, you look at them, and they're so glorious. They seem to shine with the generosity and joy of Jesus. And you think, I want to be like that when I'm older. That's what the glory of God does. This is the sight that will fill our hearts. I come here to America and I see enormous potential. Just just the ability of the church in the United States to impact the world is unmatched. But for all that you do have, if you don't have this, you will go out and in the power of your own effort, you'll go out and you'll burn out. So fill your eyes with the glory of Christ. Ensure that he is beautiful to you. Make sure you see why he's better. And then you'll want to proclaim him and not yourself. When he's glorious to you, you'll want to share him. This is what we're designed for. And when we do this, What's actually happening is we're being drawn into God's own life. But have you ever thought of this? What was God the Father eternally doing before he created the world? Enjoying his perfect son, loving him, enjoying being with him. And so when we enjoy Jesus Christ, we're sharing in the pleasure of the Father. We're sharing his happiness. And when when we cry, Abba, Abba, we praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Then we're joining in with the Son and sharing his happiness. And then and only then do we think and feel straight. When the one who is actually preeminent in reality becomes preeminent in our thoughts and minds and hearts.
And in that, friends, in that moment begins the work of transformation that will be perfected when, as 1 John 3, 2 puts it, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. We'll be like him because we'll see him. And so what John is saying is that for now, the sight of Christ by faith begins to transform us. But one day, when Christ returns, when I actually clap eyes on him, my Lord and Savior, when he returns, that sight will be so majestically affecting, my very body will transform. Even my body will be made Christ-like, and body and soul will be like Jesus, perfected. Then we will shine like stars. We will sing with our hearts as well as our voices in tune. Theologians used to like calling that sight the beatific vision because that sight of our Savior will be the most happifying sight. It will be the moment of supreme enraptured joy when we see the desire of our hearts. And when he appears in the full sweetness of his glory, when he appears, it will mean all sin and pain will be blasted away. The end of darkness, the end of earthquakes, the end of dictatorships, the end of abuse, the end of death. That, that friends, is our blessed hope glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll see his face. Come, Lord Jesus. That's our hope. But even now, Paul's saying, the shining sight of him by faith begins to drive away our night. Even now we feel the dawn rising. Even now with unveiled faces as we gaze on the glory of the Lord, he begins to put an end to the crookedness and evil within us. We begin to shine. And with that in mind, I, I think of words of worship we used just earlier. We sung, Alleluia. The word hallelujah in Hebrew has a double meaning. Most people know one of them. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. Hallelujah, praise Yah, Yahweh, the Lord. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. But the first meaning of Hallel, that first bit of the word, is actually to shine. Making Hallelujah mean, may the Lord shine forth. For when we make him known in our praises, the one enthroned between the cherubim shines forth. And this is Psalm 80. The psalmist cries, restore us, O God. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Because the shining forth of the Lord means the overcoming of our darkness. It means the opening of eyes, the defeat of sin and evil, the bringing of life. And so, hallelujah. May the Lord shine forth, and he will, until that day when finally there will be no more night at all, and there will be no need for light of lamp or sun or moon, for the Lord God will give them light, and the glory of God will enlighten And then the winter of our discontent will be made a glorious summer by this Son of God. Now, 
Isn't it ridiculous then that we poor sinners actually struggle with this? Right? We struggle with letting the Lord shine forth because I want to outshine him. Isn't that ridiculous of me? I want to outshine him. I want the glory. That's what we're like. It makes me think of the story of the conqueror of the world, Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great, at the height of his power, wanted to go and see the famous um, little philosopher Diogenes who lived in a barrel. He was famous for living in a barrel and basically had no possessions or anything. And Alexander wanted to go and see him. And he walked up to Diogenes and thinking he was so great he could offer him anything, said, Diogenes, what can I do for you? And Diogenes looked up and said, get out of the sunlight. That was the best thing Alexander could do. For people who think they are glorious are like shadows. They get in the way of the sunshine of Christ, rather like the God of this world. And so, friends, recognize the devilry of self-glory and step aside. Let people see the light of Christ. I think I want to say this particularly to those who are younger here this evening. Younger friends, this is what you're made for. This is what you'll find supreme satisfaction in reveling in the light of the glory of Christ and becoming radiant, reflecting, heralding him. So, as you think about what to do with your life, don't settle for less. Don't settle in this comfortable nation for wealth, comfort, success, popularity, status, these are piffling, passing things that can come and go in a flash. You'd be a fool to live for them. Instead, however you're going to do it, live and die for the glory of Jesus. Because only he, shedding his love and glory, can truly transform truly make an eternal difference for good. Let me finish in another city, in Geneva. 450 years ago, the city of Geneva in Switzerland was turned on its head by the knowledge of Christ. At the beginning of the century, the city had a motto, post tenebras Spero lucem. After darkness, I hope for light. It could be the motto of the world, couldn't it? After the darkness, after all the pain and difficulty, I hope there's some light at the end. When the Reformation hit town, they changed the city motto to Post tenebras lux. After darkness, light. For through the Reformation, they'd found what they'd been hoping for. And what was it? What was this light that they'd been hoping for? Was it a doctrine? Salvation by God's free kindness? Was that it? Yes, part of it. But more. And John Calvin was quite specific on this. Through the great gospel rediscoveries of the Reformation, Christ was shown to be glorious. He was shown to be gracious, kind, compassionate, 
powerful to save even great sinners and keep them to the uttermost. And friends, if we're to see cities turned around like that today, if we're to see this city enlightened, if we're to see light driving out darkness in this world, Christ must be shown to be more glorious, more desirable, more precious than anything else. And I pray, brothers and sisters, may that always be true for you. Hallelujah. May the Lord shine forth until the full dawning of his day. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, we pray that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ might tear away every veil that's here. That we might be transformed. Transform us, we pray, to desire Christ more than anything else. And so I pray, may there be brothers and sisters here who live for Christ and who'll die for him, who'll be transformed ever more by his glory, to become more and more beautifully Christ-like, generous, joyful, loving, and so help to scatter the darkness of this world with the light of Jesus. For our joy and for your glory, we pray it.